You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money, so start by knowing what you own and owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everyone. It is Jean Chatsky, and I've got a big smile on my face because just in time for Mother's Day, we're talking with Esther Wojcicki, who is a leading American educator, journalist, teacher, and mother. Some people call her the godmother of Silicon Valley. You will hear why in just a moment. Because of her approach to teaching and child rearing, she has been able to change the lives of thousands of her students. She's also raised three superstar daughters, Susan, who is the CEO of YouTube, Janet, a professor of pediatrics at University of California, San Francisco, and Anne, who is the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. Esther's out with her new book. It's called How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. Esther, thanks so much for joining us on the phone today. I am honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you are very, very welcome. We know that this introduction could not have done your life's work justice, but the team here at Her Money were particularly grateful for your dedication to journalism. You founded the Media Arts Program at Palo Alto High School. You built a journalism program from just 20 students back in 1984 to 600 Today, five journalism teachers, nine publications. I mean, that in and of itself is spectacular. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Honestly, I uh, think journalism is something that a subject that all students should learn. You learn the most important skills in being a journalist. Well, I hope that one of those important skills is listening. That's the one that's highest up on my book. Yes, listening is a very important skill and most people don't do it very well. So we teach them how to listen. You start this book with incredible vulnerability. You share stories from your childhood, some involving abuse and loss. How did you use your upbringing to shape the type of person and parent that you wanted to be? Well, my upbringing, as you mentioned, was not ideal, to say the least. And I wanted to make sure that my children did not have to have that kind of an upbringing. So my goal was to change my parenting so that it was nothing like the kind of parenting that I experienced growing up. So one of the first things I did is trust myself as a parent. I trusted my gut instincts because I thought that that was probably the best way for me to go. I, I thought to myself, I want to parent the way I wish I would have been parented. And the first thing that I wanted my children to be able to do was to be as independent and self-assured as possible. So I wanted little tiny children to be able to say to me, Mommy, I would like to do this, or I would like to do that, and be polite about it and be able to actually carry on a conversation with me. I know that sounds really surprising, but it turns out that you can teach your kids to do that really early. 
And uh, plus, you can teach them a lot of other things really early. A lot of parents don't do it for some reason. But, you know, I taught them how to help out around the house really early. And I taught them how to swim early, how to recognize letters. Actually, I didn't teach them that. Sesame Street. I thank Sesame Street for doing that. (laughs) A couple of points that you just made I want to stop on. First of all, the swimming thing. I mean, my mother had a theory that you cannot teach kids to swim until they're five. You can can maybe teach them to float, but they're they're not actually going to get the swimming thing with the arms and the legs until they're a little older. How did you manage that one? I bought this book called How to Teach Your Child to Swim. And I just followed the recipe in the book. (laughs) And I have a pool in the backyard. And so I wanted to make sure that there was no accident. You know, you read about those all the time. And I wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to happen to me. So I made sure that all the children learned to swim really early. Turns out you can teach a 12-month-old child to swim. And uh, and it's not unusual, actually. I thought I was the only one. But it turns out that were other people, maybe their child was a little older, 14 months, 16 months. But um, swim means that they did not do the Australian crawl. They didn't look like they were ready for the Olympics or anything. That meant they did more like a breaststroke mm-hmm. and that they would swim with a breaststroke and then pop up in the water, swim with a breaststroke and pop up. And they could do that for the entire length of the pool. Amazing. Well, if I ever have another child, which I won't, but I'll probably have grandchildren, I will give it another go. More importantly, there's a message in your book and throughout your book to encourage your children to take personal responsibility. And and you say that one of the mistakes that parents are making over and over again is to assume too much responsibility for our kids, not just for their actions, but for their emotions. Can you explain? Now, one of the things that parents do is they take the responsibility for making sure their child is happy. And when their child doesn't feel happy for some reason or other, then the parent has a sense of guilt. It's like, I've done something wrong. What should I be doing? They need to be happy. That's one of the things that a pediatrician here in Silicon Valley said that she thought was one of the problems. In fact, it's that child's responsibility to be happy. And you can facilitate that, but you are not the person in charge of that. And, you know, we need to give kids an opportunity to do some of the things that they want to do that aren't going to infringe on other people's freedoms or that's not going to hurt themselves or hurt other kids. But we tend to be very directive. There is no more sort of free play anymore. Mm-hmm. We sign them up for, oh, they're going to have a play date and now they're going to have a lesson and now they're going to be doing this. And they don't, we don't give them an opportunity to even think about what they want to do. We tell them what they're going to do. And there's another thing that I always found really helpful. My kids always learn to help clean up. And I know that sounds like, oh, how did you do that? Well, I bought a plastic swimming pool. You know, one of those things that they sell in the summertime. Yeah. And I put it in the middle of the family room. And it wasn't big. It wasn't a giant one. It was a small one. And the goal was every day at the end of the day, it was their responsibility, the kids, to collect all the toys they had out all around the house and put them in that plastic swimming pool. And that was really easy for them to time. It's like cleanup time. And they did it. And then it was easy. 
and they got into the habit of, I'm going to clean up. Now it's time to clean up. And the next morning, they could always find their toys because they were always in the plastic swimming pool. It sounds like one of your messages is that we're not asking enough of our children, that we're doing too much for them. I mean, we're recording this podcast in the aftermath of the college admissions scandal. And, you know, that screams helicoptering or snow plowing or whatever terms you want to use for parents doing things for their kids rather than allowing them to succeed or fail or make decisions on their own. Did you have trouble at all not prescribing a way of life for your kids and allowing them to step up and take more of the reins? Well, first of all, I didn't have a nanny. I didn't have a cook. I didn't have a housekeeper. I had just me. So it was me and three kids and my husband who worked pretty much all the time. So I thought to myself, why not let them be the helpers? And why not, you know, let them be empowered? And so that's part of what I did that I think made a big difference. Um, and I, I would encourage parents to do that because what happens when you do everything for your child, your child feels like they can't do things without your help. So they always want you to be there to help me. I can't do this because mommy or daddy has to help me do it. And, um, and especially the parents today that are very sort of restrictive and making sure that their child does everything, quote, right. That makes it much more demanding on the kids. And then that scandal you referred to, I mean, that is really the ultimate helicopter snowplow parent situation. The real victims in that scandal are the kids whose parents did that because they have to go through life knowing that that parent didn't believe in them. Right. Didn't believe that they were good enough. I I had a conversation with my own mother My kids are, one is right out of college and the other one is graduating this year. And my son got a a report card and he was not happy with it. And quite frankly, I was not happy with it. But I remembered my own freshman year of college when I got the first C's that I ever got in my life. And I went to my mother and I said, you know, I do not remember you giving me a hard time about this report card. And she said, well, they weren't my grades. And I just thought, you know, I had a really smart mother, like that she could distance herself from that in that way. She said, I figured you'd figure it out, which eventually I did. But this idea that our kids have to be perfect, how did we get here? Yeah, it's a good question, because we all want our kids to go to the college and then there's competition. People are looking around like, oh, the boy down the street, he's doing much better. You know, I need to make sure that my child is going to do that as well. I think the college pressure has resulted in a lot of these behaviors, which are really counterproductive for the parents and counterproductive for the students. We have to realize every kid is special and every kid can emerge to be amazing And we don't have to put them in a mold. They don't have to follow a prescribed path. People wonder, like, you know, what did you do with your daughters? How did they end up going to do what they did? They didn't. It was was not a straight path. You know, Susan majored in French and English history and lit. And then when she graduated, I said, so now what do you want to do? 
And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> Here I was, you know, four years, we had paid for the tuition, and now she wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do. So what did you say? Because I can imagine having that conversation with my daughter in about two months. And so I said, well, you know, maybe you should try to get a job. And so she went out and she got herself a job. It was on one of these boards at Stanford where they just have the three by five cards. Mm -hmm. And um, the job was she was supposed to be checking historical facts for a company. And she thought, well, this is down my alley. I majored in history, right? And so she went, she got the job. Apparently, she did the job in two weeks. They thought it would take two months. So at the end of two weeks, she was done. And so then they said, well, what else can you do? And she's like, uh, well, I don't know, nothing. So they said, well, if you go, if you teach yourself to program, we can hire you. So she went out to the bookstore. She bought herself some books on how to program. And that's the beginning of the story. And they hired her. It's, How's that? It, I, think, I think that's pretty good. Tell me about the other two. Did they have straight paths? No. So Janet, Janet majored in international relations. And, you know, what are you going to do with international relations? So then she decided she was going to go to graduate school, and she was going to major in African-American history. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm not quite sure what you're going to do with that either. And uh, she got a degree, finished that degree in African-American history, and then she decided that she was going to go to South Africa by herself. No invitation. She didn't know anybody at all. She just bought herself a ticket to go to South Africa, hopped on the plane, and went to South Africa. And did you try to intercede in any way? Did you give her money? Did you say, make sure you get all your shots? I mean, I don't know if you need shots, but did, I mean, did you? you what sort of parenting went into helping her through this? Or was she just on her own? You know, she would, I, what happened is I wanted them to be independent. So, okay, I got my wish, right? And so she wanted to go to South Africa on her own. And she bought her own ticket. She made her own plans. There was no internet then, so she couldn't really make a lot of plans. I was powerless at that point because she was already 21 years old. And she decided this is what she wanted to do, or 22 maybe she was. And I guess she had done some research in the library to figure out like why she wanted to go to South Africa. She didn't take a cell phone with her. There wasn't a cell phone then when she was doing it. And so you just have to believe in your child. It was hard. It was, you know, tough for me because, you know, the only communication can be through a landline phone. She would call and say, you know, here I am, Mom, I'm okay. But, you know, South Africa at that time was considered the most dangerous country in the world outside a war zone. So it turns out she did really well. You know, she managed to get a job at the University of Witzwatersbond. I don't know how she got around or found out what she was doing or anything. But, you know, you have to trust them. Yeah, um, so. I think that's what's missing in, in so many parent-child relationships today. I want to get to your method for instilling the values that create successful and capable people. But before I do that, is there a, as you look at the world of how we're raising children today, can you put your finger on the one thing that you wrote this book to solve? Oh, I wrote the book to solve the over-parenting, the, the over-coddling of the American child, and the actually 
somewhat like prison atmosphere in our public school system. I want to change those two things. When we talk about overparenting, how do you think we're blowing it financially? Well, first of all, we spend a lot of extra money um, teaching kids things that they're going to learn eventually anyway on their own, like prepping kids so they can get to the right preschool and, you know, making sure that they have all these, quote, experiences when all little kids really want to do is go out in the playground and run around and play. And uh, the other thing is I don't think we teach our kids financial literacy skills. I don't know why we don't. It's, I mean, my, my kids were on the Sunday paper. They always loved the Sunday paper because it came with the comics, but then it came with the coupons. Mm-hmm. And using those little scissors, they were always cutting out the coupons. And then they would organize the coupons actually alphabetically. And then we'd go to the store together and they would whip out their coupons because they wanted to get this, this, or whatever it was. And so they were learning a lot of financial literacy. They were learning the value of saving because I basically said, you know, every penny you save isn't a penny that you don't have to earn. I mean, it's, I know it's a penny, but um, I, always, I always used pennies. And um, they had piggy banks, but they, they understood financial literacy really early on. I showed them all these charts on, you know, how your money grows. And I always believed that financial literacy was really important. I think it should be taught in the schools. And I'm not sure, I don't think it's being taught in the schools, not in the way that I see it should be taught. I totally and completely agree. And I know that our friends at Fidelity Investments agree also. They're on a mission to get women to demand more from our money. And that's why they're sponsoring this show. Their aim is to make our savings work as hard as we do because they know that will help us reach our financial goals faster. All of this starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. And from there, the folks at Fidelity can work with you to evaluate your investment options and a variety of ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are talking on this Mother's Day show with Esther Wojcicki, author of How to Raise Successful People. So in the book, you've got a method. It's called TRIC. It stands for Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. And you say these are the five fundamental values that can help all of us become capable, successful people. So can we take them one by one? Sure. All right, trust. How do you instill trust in your relationships with your children? Well, the first thing you have to do is let them do some things that they would like to do and trust them to do it. Trust them to help you, trust them to do some activities by themselves, but then it actually has to start with you because you have to trust yourself and trust your gut reactions. You have to say that what I'm doing is right and you don't have to validate it all the time. Check it here, check it there. You treat your children with trust and respect, basically love. And whatever you're doing is going to probably be just fine. 
as long as you're not micromanaging them. I mean, the example that you just gave us, allowing your kids to clip coupons and essentially decide, hey, we're going to buy this brand of cookie this week. I mean, that's kind of an example of that. That's correct. They, We went to the store together. They were the ones that looked at the products on the shelves. And actually, at that point, I was already teaching them to read labels and like what the, what the product should have, what it shouldn't have. They helped buy the food. They helped prepare the food. They were very definitive in what they thought was good and what they thought shouldn't be. And they're still like that today. Can you imagine this? Well, they grew up and they're very definitive about what kinds of foods they like to eat. It doesn't mean that they don't eat everybody's food when you go to dinner. It's just that they have special things that they think their kids should eat. And then the kids also get to make decisions, their children. So it's being passed down the line. They get to also help determine what is coming for dinner. When you talk about respect, um, you say that one way to show respect to your children is by offering them autonomy and individuality. How can we all do this a little bit better? Well, respect for somebody's ideas That's really important. Everybody wants respect. That's one of the reasons why people want money, because they think that the more money they have or the label they're wearing on their clothing is going to bring respect. But actually, respect comes from having these values that we all care about each other and that we respect the right of somebody to have their own opinions, especially your children. And so if they have opinions that sound a little wacky, well, they're kids. Let them have some of those opinions. Talk about them. That's one of the things I do in class. I let my students talk about things that they want to write about. And I must tell you, some of them sound really far out. But the fact that I respect and listen to their ideas makes a huge impact on them. And they are willing to take more risks. And some of those risks are related to creativity. That's what creativity is, taking a risk and thinking and trying new ideas ideas that are perhaps going to make their life better at school or life better at home. And so what you want to do always is listen. How can you be a really good listener? That's part of respect. Listen to what other people say. Listen to what your children say. Don't be quick to judge. Give them an opportunity to speak what they have on their mind and then respond to it in a respectful way. Seems like that's become so much more difficult to do in this politically bifurcated country. That's true. It has become more politically bifurcated and it's more harder to do. But one of the ways that we can solve this, because we are all one country, this is America, is that we all have to talk to each other and respect the other side's views. We all have a reason for thinking the way we do, but a lot of our reasons are really common if we would just give each other an opportunity to listen to what the other side had has to say. And we all want the best for everybody in this country, or we wouldn't be doing a lot of the things we're doing. Independence is third on the list. Um, you started encouraging independence with your daughters really young. It's because I had this theory early on that being independent and teaching these skills early on was kind of like setting the mold. It's kind of like clay. They learn these skills very early, and then by the time they're five, the mold is already set. 
And so it's hard to change it. And I know as a teacher, when you set the rules in a classroom in the beginning of the school year in September, it's so hard to change those rules in the middle of the year, no matter what. And so that was one of the most important things. I wanted kids to be independent early on because I wanted them to be able to control their environment. I wanted them to have a sense of control because when you feel like you can control your environment, you're at peace with the environment. You're at peace with yourself if you have some control. It's true about money, too. When you feel like you can control your money, you're at much greater peace with your financial life. That's right. Well, my kids all had those. They earned an allowance. They took their money. They went to the local dime store. They spent a lot of time analyzing whatever it was there before they made their large purchase, which usually amounted to a dollar. Um, (laughs) But I agree with all those things you're talking about with regard to money. Money Money empowers you, and you want to help your kids use money in a way that makes sense. And you, you personally, as a, an adult, want to be able to use your money in ways that make sense. And that's why I guess we all get upset when we think that it's been wasted or we've been cheated. Um, and we just, in order to be able to avoid that, you need to understand financial planning and you have to understand the power of, uh, of how interest can improve your, the amount of money you can make. The C in trick is collaboration. This is more than just teamwork, right? Oh, yeah. This is more than just teamwork. It's collaborating. So it's collaboration at all levels. When It's interesting. My children went to some kind of a special, I think it was a seminar when they were in high school. And it was a parent-child seminar. And one of the parents um, my children were paired up with said to them, Um, what happens when your parents don't respect your ideas? And I remember my daughter, Anne, came back and said, I couldn't believe that parent because they said that, you know, parents don't respect your ideas and they don't collaborate. And she said, are there parents out there like that? (laughs) You said 95%. And so, you know, what I was doing, I wasn't reading any books. I wasn't trying to find out what my neighbors were doing. I was just reacting from my own gut reaction of what I wanted them to be collaborators. We were all in this house together. We're all working on making our lives better together. So we were collaborators in all areas, including, you know, when we traveled, they got to have input on where we would go. If we went to the museums, if we went to the shows, went to the beach, whatever, you know, they had input. I valued their thoughts. They weren't just going along for the ride. They were collaborators. And I think that set them up for how to collaborate in life in general, because that's what life is all about. And that's what working in a company is all about. It's learning to collaborate effectively with your peer group or with the group that you're working on a project with. It's really important to learn to collaborate and not to just be, people are so competitive Um, so, you know, maybe you can collaborate and maybe teams can compete. It's good to have some competition. It's just not to have that much competition where you then forget what your goals are and forget how effective it is to work with other people. And finally, the K is for kindness. Why is kindness so important? Kindness, kindness and compassion 
that is what makes the world really go around. And that was enables us. It's kind of like the way to facilitate life. And if you just think about it, there is not a single religion out there, not from the East, the West, the Middle East, anywhere. They all teach kindness, no matter what the label is of the religion. And so we need to remember how important kindness is in the world and how important it is for making the world be a better place and being kind to your children, being kind especially to yourself. We all make mistakes. We get mad. We get mad at ourselves. We have to remember that kindness also belongs to us. We need to be kind to ourselves, kind to our spouses, kind to our children, kind to the people in the world. You will be much happier with everything when you're kind. Absolutely. As we wrap this up, I I saw a report yesterday that came out talking again, and there are a lot of these reports, about the number of adults, young adults, who are still being supported financially by their parents. This one was was most striking because it, it said that women were actually not as likely to be as supported as young men were. But if you're talking to parents who are still supporting these young adults and who would like to extricate themselves from that situation or at least empower their offspring to become financially independent sooner rather than later, what advice would you give them? I would say that no matter what job that child wants to take, I would encourage them. I can tell you one of the things they need to do is to in some way contribute to the world, no matter what it is. One summer when Susan was home, she actually had a job managing all the garbage trucks in Palo Alto. And, you know, this was a job where she learned a lot of skills. And Janet had some jobs. I mean, all kinds of babysitting jobs. There are jobs out there. If you are a 25-year-old or you're a 30-year-old, there are a lot of jobs out there. As a matter of fact, there's 400,000 jobs out in America today that aren't being filled. So that might not be the ideal job, but it's a job and it brings you in touch with people and it helps you think about new ideas and it's a way to contribute to the world in some way and make things better. So I would advise them, have your child get a job. Esther Wojcicki, happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there in America and the world. And Kelly will be right back with your mailbag. Kelly Hultgren, our producer, has joined me in the studio. Hello. Hi, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I really wanted to have her on the show. Oh, I know. This guest was one we were really excited about for a while. I met Anne at one of the Fortune Most Powerful Women's Conferences, and she took the stage to talk about 23andMe, and she she said, so how many of you have spat for me yet? Because, you know, when you take the oh, genetic right. test, you have to, like, mm-hmm. fill a tube full of spit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was my introduction. Nice. My introduction, quite honestly, I've read of her and her work in journalism for years now since studying journalism myself. I don't think I fully understood the extent of her work and who she is as a woman until researching this podcast and getting a chance to read her book. I am blown away. She is an incredible woman, and I love the idea of empowering parents to adopt more of 
the mentality or the identity of being educators and considering us all as educators. And I love, love, love this encouragement of independence for children. For sure. I really do. And I'm so grateful that my parents did that. And I didn't really know or understand until this episode of how valuable that approach can be. And I've always thought, too, of like, my parents really gave me the freedom to make my own decisions. Mm -hmm. They were there if I needed their help, but only if I came to them. They didn't necessarily like come in and try to dictate my life or my decisions. My parents did as well. And I think when I was a child, Mm -hmm. which was a long time before you were a child, (laughs) I think it was much more the norm. Mm. You know, I mean, we were outside playing. Mm -hmm. We were not scheduled all the time. But nobody was. That was more normal. And as things have changed and kids are scheduled and, you know, there are some safety and security concerns with having kids running all over the place. I mean, we used to let our dog just run all over the neighborhood. You would never do that these days. But when she acknowledged being a young mother and trusting her gut, part of me wondered, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. Because... I, as a young mother, I know I second-guessed myself all the time. And I think it's a really, really difficult thing to do. Getting over imposter syndrome of being a mother, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we generally talk about imposter syndrome for our careers and identities in the workplace. But that's something that's really interesting to dive into a little deeper. Yep, for sure. Another Another podcast, another another show. What do we have from today's mailbag? We'll do a couple today. Our first from Tammy. My husband and I are recently married, 30-somethings. For the past few years, we have always kept a financial system for sharing joint expenses, etc., and have had transparency around money. That being said, I realized as we were prepping our taxes for the first time this year as a married couple that my husband has a taxable individual brokerage account, but he didn't really know what it was. (laughs) So many years ago, his father put aside some of the money he had saved for my husband's college tuition into a Roth IRA and a non-retirement brokerage account that had gone unused because of my husband's partial scholarship. It was maybe $2,000 total in the early 2000s. The accounts have been sitting untouched for the past 18 years, and the non-retirement retirement account is now worth roughly 8400 We aren't totally sure what we should do with the money now that we've realized it's not at all retirement account money. We have an emergency savings account set up that I'd like to see a bit more robust as we live in the high-cost New York City area, but we currently already have a plan for adding to that, and I'm not sure if it's wise to pull that money to sit in a high-interest savings. It appears the accounts are actively managed, and while the funds themselves vary in fees around 0.99% to 1.1%, my first thought was that we should transfer somewhere else so we are paying less in fees. We have a baby on the way and would like to save as much as we can for our dream of owning a home in the next three to five years. Would we be best off moving that money into investments for balanced funds, a la David Box, Smart Couples, Finish Rich, which we both started reading, for our dream goal bucket? Should we keep it where it is? The funds the money is invested in now appear to be value and growth funds. Should we pull it out entirely and put it into a high-interest savings account and play it safe? Help, she says. Before you can make this decision... (laughs) 
And it's great that you've gotten such a terrific education before even asking it. But before you can make this decision, you have to decide what the money is for. If the money is for a down payment on a house, which it sounds like that might be a possibility, then you may very well, if you want to buy that house in the next three years, want to move the money out of this account and into a high interest rate savings account. Because at that point, what you've decided is, I don't want to lose this money. And if the market takes a tumble, even if it's in a balanced fund, it could lose substantially. You could decide this is for retirement, in which case, yes, I think moving the money to a place where it is invested in the S&P 500, for example, or the total stock market, or some sort of other really, really low-cost index fund. Um, Our sponsor, Fidelity, has index funds now that cost nothing. Mm -hmm. You could certainly make more on your money. Actively managed funds absolutely have a place for people who are trying to beat the market, for people who are trying to invest in particular sorts of ways. It doesn't sound like you are necessarily those people. But I would probably do one or the other. I would decide what it's for. If it's for the long term, then I would look for a lower cost investment solution. And if it's for the short term, then I would put it in a high interest rate savings account. Great. Thank you. And thank you, Tammy, for writing in. We'll do one more from Kenneth. Are the companies that offer to negotiate your credit card debt for a lower monthly payment and or lower interest rate on the up and up? I have been considering this option for some time now, but I find myself hesitating because the expression, what's the catch, always comes up. I would appreciate it if you could explain how these things work and any advice you might have regarding these companies before I go ahead with something I might possibly regret. I'm not exactly sure what companies you're talking about. Me neither, Kenneth. I suspect, Kenneth, that you're talking about a not-for-profit credit counselor. Ah. Um, That's my suspicion. Not-for-profit credit counselors are for people who are in trouble with their credit cards, who are having trouble making the monthly payments, and they have pre-negotiated lower interest rates with a lot of the credit card companies so they can lower these high interest rates down to the 6% range. But basically, you're saying that you're not going to use your credit cards anymore and that you are going to pool your monthly payments, send one payment to the credit counselor, and they will pay all of your bills at this lower interest rate. It could also be that you're talking about some of the companies that negotiate other bills for you. There are companies like Trim, which get rid of subscriptions and which negotiate with your cable company. As far as I know, those companies are not in the business of negotiating with credit card companies. But here's the thing. If what you want is a lower interest rate from your credit card company and you've got a good credit score, you don't need a company to do this for you. You can do it yourself. You either You first pick up the phone and you call your current credit card company and you explain to them that you're a good customer with a good credit score who routinely receives offers in the mail for lower interest rate credit cards and you think they should lower your interest rate. Or you look for a lower interest rate credit card 
and you transfer your balance. And if you're going to go down that road, just keep in mind that if you're carrying a balance, there are often balance transfer fees of about 3%. The only card that I know right now that doesn't have one is Chase Slate, which Mm. is still offering, I believe, a good 15 months of 0% interest. Okay. And I thought of two more as you were brainstorming that. There is a service called Tally that will work as kind of a credit card manager. Like they'll take on the debt and manage that for you and they negotiate an interest rate or you pay them Ah. a lower interest rate. I'll dig into it a little bit more, but that just came from my memory and they've been on the market now for a few years. So that could be something. So there might be more that I'm not up on. That we're, we're both not up on. And then also something I caught too, more macro is, you know, the idea of negotiating a lower monthly payment. That might benefit you from your, you know, day-to-day budget, but that doesn't benefit you from Paying more interest over time. Right. So I just wanted to throw that out there, too, because I was like, oh, that sounds really nice. And then I thought about it some more, and it won't amount to be nice. Right. Well, if your lower monthly payment goes along with a reduction in the interest rate... Then that's nice. Yeah. And and again, balance transfer offers abound right now. Mm. So as long as your credit score is good, I see absolutely no reason why you can't get one. Great. Thank you, Jean. And thank you, everyone. Please email me your questions at mailbag at hermoney.com. And in case you haven't done it before, we also publish two newsletters every single week from Her Money. They are for free. For free. They are a roundup of the most important financial news that you need to manage your money, as well as the stories that we are covering via our team at Her Money. And you can go to hermoney.com slash subscribe and we'll get you on those lists. Another tax filing season has come and gone. That is the topic of today's Thrive. So now that the dominoes have fallen, let's take a look at what the Tax Cut and Jobs Act really did for your wallet. It turns out most of us actually got a tax cut last year, but not all of us believe that we got a tax cut last year. According to the New York Times, just about 40% of us believe we got a tax cut, while 65% of us actually did. Why the disconnect? Many people who were impacted by the SALT cap, that's state and local taxes, they weren't the net losers they assumed they would be under the law. Other people may have missed the extra dollars trickling into their paychecks every pay period throughout the year, an average of about 50 bucks for folks paid bi-weekly. The upshot is that refunds overall were actually up by about 1%. Still, if you want to ensure that you are set up to get more money back next year, first, understand that giving the government an interest-free loan for 12 months only so that you get a solid lump sum down the pike is a questionable way to save. But if it's the only way that works for you, we are not going to judge. Or if you owed money this year and you want to prevent it from happening again, the time to act is right now. Last year, the new tax tables were only in effect for nine months of the year. This year, you've got them for all 12. So any problems you encountered will only be made that much worse if you don't take steps to adjust your withholding. And H&R Block says 80% of us failed to do that in 2018. The good news is, 
It's easy. Go to your company's HR department as soon as you're able, fill out a new W-4, and if you're sure of how much to have withheld, the IRS's withholding calculator can guide the way, just like our newsletter. It's free. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Esther Wojcicki for the terrific conversation, the inspiring conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with Gemma Hartley, the author of Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. And we'll talk soon. 